Listeners to Outrage and Optimism, here is a special broadcast. There will be a global strike on Friday, the 20th of September. It is now time to find out what other participants are doing in the strike. Christiana, Tom, explain what will be your actions on that day. (laughs) You should have been a... You can't just laugh at me, Christiana. This is important. Answer, please. I mean, politely, nicely. Please answer. You sound like a sort of sped up war announcer. Exactly. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> Prepare answers, you two. You ready? You ready? Okay, here we go. Okay, wait. But before you start, um, I'm going to cue up some cheesy broadcast music behind you. So let me get it ready here and uh, just roll with it. I'm going to intro you. Okay, here we go. Live from London and around the world, this is a special outrage and optimism announcement from your favorite host, Paul Dickinson. This is a special announcement from Outrage and Optimism. There will be a global strike, a global strike, on Friday, the 20th of September. Important actions will be taken by many people, including the presenters on this show. Starting off with Christiana and Tom, please explain what you'll be doing on that day. Well, I'm a little bit nervous by that announcement. (laughs) But um, I shall be in New York. And uh, we'll be joining the strike, presumably right in front of the United Nations, which will be quite a different viewpoint for me (laughs) on such a day. (laughs) It's not actually. The strike is downtown in New York. It's down. It ends at Battery Park. Um, So I'll be there with you as well. Nicer, nicer. Sorry. Yeah, nicer. So it's going to be amazing. Wherever you are, you don't have to be in New York. There are thousands of these things going on around the world. Millions of people are going to walk out from school, walk out from their jobs. The momentum going off this day has just been amazing. I saw the other day that Amnesty International have written to 30,000 schools around the world asking them to walk out. We're seeing businesses shut down, people walking out. It's going to be a real moment of global unity and you have to be part of it. 20th of September, wherever you are, go to globalclimatestrike.net. Have a look at where all the strikes are around the world. Participate, start one if there's not one near you. Take part of the day if you can't take all the day. But you've got to participate. This is historic. You don't want to miss this. Globalclimatestrike.net. This is outrage and optimism. (laughs) We call for a global strike on the 20th of September. P.S. Outrage and optimism also wants to know what Clay Carnell is doing on the 20th of September. Thank you, Paul. Yes, and a note to our listeners, the episode next week will not be available on Friday as I will be striking right here in Detroit, Michigan at Grand Circus Park at 3 p.m. on Friday, September 20th. And how did I find out there was a climate strike in my city? I went to globalclimatestrike.net and I entered the city I live in. Okay, back to you, Paul. Oh, but let me actually cue the music here. Okay, Paul, take us out. We're live in three, two. Thank you, Clay. This concludes the special broadcast from Outrage and Optimism regarding the global climate strike. Please go to globalclimatestrike.net and find out where your local strike is. This is important. Do not stay in your homes. Goodbye. Thank you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, was, uh, that was pretty good. It, it, any amount of editing of this, Clay, will not offend me. Oh, I'm definitely editing it. It's going to make the top of the show. Let's do the podcast. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we are going to talk about the crisis in the Amazon and explore what solutions exist given the reality of President Jair Bolsonaro's position. Plus, we speak to Dr. Thomas Lovejoy, 
professor in environmental science at George Mason University, conservation biologist who's worked in the Amazon for the last 50 years, and widely known as the godfather of biodiversity. Thanks for being here. So this week, we are going to delve into one of the most challenging topics that has emerged this year and really has had the world in a state of advanced panic and alarm over the course of the last few weeks. And that is the apparent destruction that has been widespread across the Amazon. We all know that deforestation has long been a challenging issue over multiple decades with varying degrees of intensity. But this year has been particularly intense with wildfires there, by most accounts, over double what they usually are. And perhaps more alarming, the attitude of the government seems to be one of neglect or disdain. So today, now that this topic has kind of come off the boil in the news, we thought we'd kind of delve into what solutions exist to this. And we thought we'd start with what is actually a really thorny issue of geopolitics. And it is the point that was so starkly illustrated at the G7, when President Macron said that this was a global emergency and called for it to be brought up at the G7. And the president of Brazil responded by saying, hey, this is a Brazilian issue what right do you have to talk about what we see as a domestic issue on the international stage? So this sets up this very interesting tension between what Brazil sees as their issue and what others see as a global issue that is fundamentally connected to the global climate. So let's start there. Well, um, Tom, there seems to be a conflict between national sovereignty, which every country is certainly entitled to, and the global commons, let's say. But the fact is that both are true. And so to take one side or the other does not reflect reality because both are true. So seen from the global perspective, the Amazon is home to 10% of all plant species in the world, 20% of all bird species, 2.5 million insect species, and 30 million people, which we tend to forget about when we talk about the Amazon. It also produces 20% of the Earth's oxygen, i.e. it is one of the two large lungs of the Earth. On the other hand, it is squarely in Brazil. 60% of the Amazon is in Brazil. The rest is in Bolivia, Venezuela, and Colombia that are also having fires. And their people are affected. It is their biodiversity as well. And so we have to be able to move to a space in which we understand that both of these things are actually under threat, that it's not just one or the other. It's not just the global need. It's not just um, the right of any country to decide what is going on in their territory, but both together. Mm, yeah, that's true, Christiana. But you know what? I am absolutely delighted by the response of particularly President Macron and France saying, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that he did exactly the right thing, threatening the Mercosur trade agreement. But what I do believe is important is, is it's kind of the first time I really have heard in my time of major international diplomatic pressure being used with with economics as a weapon to try and make the world recognize that with it's one body we're on a little tiny weeny spaceship and if somebody goes and messes up uh, the air reprocessing machine that matters to all the astronauts on little spaceship earth 
I think that's that's because you're you're right, Christiana. Of course, that both of those things are true, right? It's a matter of global importance, and it's a matter of national sovereignty. And it's interesting that we're now seeing economic tools being utilised, as you said, Paul. Of course, we're going to have to figure this out from a governance perspective. I mean, on one level, this is new, right? Because now that we are we are very firmly reached Earth's limits, what happens in one country? is fundamentally going to affect everyone. And that goes for cutting down trees. It also goes for emissions, by the way, and maybe we'll get to the point where emissions are the subject of trade negotiations and and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it goes for cross-border pollution and a whole range of other different things. And I wonder whether what we're seeing here, and of course the Amazon is it's very emotive and it's very upsetting. It's been so heartbreaking to see all these different images. We're seeing kind of the blending of or the limits of national sovereignty on a planet that has reached its limits. Do you feel that there's something different happening here or is this just the same thing that's happened for the last 40 years? Well, I don't see how any um, national government would actually accept that. Why would any government accept that their sovereignty is being bent or has to be limited? Uh. I, I, I just don't see that happening. You're completely right in terms of the what I think is called the Westphalian consensus that uh, this 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 arrangement uh, in the Treaty of Westphalia that said that sovereign states were independent and and above and beyond each other there was there was a, some kind of high level uh, equality between them and they were independent and separate but actually the whole story of globalization is a recognition that these political niceties of yester- yesteryear just don't apply anymore that's an economic fact it's increasingly a political fact and finally it's coming home as an ecological fact. And that's what's so exciting about what's happening now. Look at the climate strikes. They're global movements. The youth around the world are are, are protesting globally. And it's that nation state is just going to actually have to jump out, snap out of its kind of old school, um, you know, aloofness and get with the program. Sorry. Well, but that's a great point. So, I mean, maybe that's a different type of sovereignty, right? And we've seen that echoed before is... I would say that if you look at the environmental press and the movements and the way that people are responding, unless Brazil gets on top of this in the coming year or years, then I think we could well see a widespread boycott of Brazilian products, um, a refusal to engage in, in, in international trade deals. And I don't mean to undermine or discount the sense of sovereignty that, of course, is so important to every country that you refer to, Christiana. But in, in such an interconnected world that has reached its limits, it does feel like there are other forces that are being brought to bear. Yeah, see, I, I don't see that the question is um, either sovereignty or global need. It's more about confrontation or collaboration. Because once mm. you move into a collaborative mindset, then you can have both. Then you can have sovereignty and you can assume your responsibility for what is happening in your country and you can accept international help because you know that what is the disasters that are happening in your country are also having an effect beyond your own boundary up to the global um, to the global level. So that doesn't so then you are willing, not just willing, but eager to receive international help. The problem is the mindset that says, I am independently here and my borders are made out of brick. They're not porous, my political borders. um, And I will determine what I want within here. And I will not 
look at consequences beyond that, either positive or negative. So it's the confrontation, the isolation, this, you know, very dangerous um, political trend that we have seen of isolating as opposed to strengthening collaboration and multilateralism. I mean, mean, that reminds me of the years before the Paris Agreement where, you know, you talk so much about the fact that... um, you know, countries that realized that coming to Paris with a strong commitment was in their own national economic self-interest. And that was really the thing that kind of broke through this idea of, um, you know, this dichotomy between who caused the problem, who needs to sort it out, etc., that plagued us for so long. But it does raise a very interesting question of what do you do when you get a Bolsonaro or a Recep Erdogan or a Duterte in the Philippines where they just don't care about that, they're just charging all over the place, and, and they take a completely different non-collaborative approach. There has to be a way of dealing with that as well within the system. So let me hone that question for you, Christiana. I've been much surprised to discover that uh, there are some very significant people with (laughs) very important jobs who listen to this podcast. How would you advise civil society, governments and business to respond to the situation in Brazil in that collaborative spirit, Christiana? What's the message? Nicely put, Paul. Well, I wish I had the answer to all the difficult questions in the world. But, um, But I don't... I wouldn't put it beyond us to exert the kind of international pressure that is being exerted because of the attitude of the Brazilian government. Um, Now, I do think that that international pressure, whether it is just political or financial slash trade, needs to come hand in hand with the reminder that if a path of collaboration is shown that then the environment, the context around that country, in this case the Brazilian um, territory, would actually change. But I do think that given the fact that this has such huge global consequences, I do think that there has to be political and probably even trade pressures. Hmm. And if you were actually in a meeting, I mean, not you personally, but if, if those outside Brazil were, were, were addressing the, the, the president, the government today, what's the, what's the kind of tone? Clearly, there's, there's the stick, you've just described it, but what's the carrot? The carrot is international help to manage a territory as large as, uh, as the Amazon, which they have always admitted is incredibly difficult for them to manage. And so there have been quite a few proposals of international financial schemes to help Brazil, um, but also to help Bolivia, Venezuela, and Colombia, who also partake of a sizable part of the Amazon, to help them manage that. But interestingly enough, it is actually Brazil itself that is right now at the international level in the negotiations, the climate negotiations, it's actually Brazil that is stopping the approval of that international financial mechanism that would help them out. Hmm. Why are they doing that? Because of their view of sovereignty. So they their view see, of sovereignty. Yeah, they, they, they see sovereignty as um, exclusive control over their own territory. That's an yeah. interesting uh, interpretation of sovereignty. Of course you have control, but... If someone is coming to help you exercise that control responsibly, that does not deny your sovereignty. That is a supportive offer um, that should be taken on board. 
I mean, it's it's such an issue of the moment, right? I don't know if you saw, but um, yesterday, the New York Declaration on Forests, uh, you probably remember, came out in the 2014 UN Climate Summit, which aimed to half deforestation by 2020 and halt it by 2030. And what they came out to say is that deforestation has continued at an alarming rate and has, in fact, accelerated throughout that time. So on average... We are now losing an area of tree cover the size of the United Kingdom every year between 2014 and 2018. You know, I think the the meta theme for me is that we're just meeting these limits, you know, and the limits really exist. And there's a kind of reality to that. You know, last week we were talking about adaptation and uh, we talked a little bit about how insurance companies would be affected. But I remember I asked actually in 2001, the head of the uh, Association of British Insurers, uh, the general in, head of general insurance, I said, has anything like climate change happened before? And he thought for a long time. And then he said, after the Nazi bombing of Guernica in 1937, all the insurance companies got together and said that they wouldn't cover war damage. And all the renewal notices that went out in 1938 and 1939 said they wouldn't cover war damage. We have to understand that climate change means things like insurance are going to get withdrawn from us. National borders won't have meanings anymore. We're in an entirely new world and we need to get new politics. Just as Christiana says, international uh, complementary politics that can help deal with this problem together because standing aloof from each other is not getting in us anywhere. So, Paul, do you, do you mean that the whole of sec- the Second World War was uninsured as a result Correcto of Correctamundo. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, um, we also do want to delve in today into precisely what is happening in the Amazon and what is the history there and what the solutions are that represent it, uh, what solutions are available to us. And there's really no one better that we could talk to than Dr. Thomas Lovejoy. Uh, Thomas Lovejoy has been a major player on this scene for decades. As I said earlier, he started working in the Amazon rainforest in 1965. He coined the term biological diversity and introduced it to the scientific community in the early 1980s and is just well-known and respected as the godfather of biodiversity. Um, Currently, he holds positions at the United Nations Foundation, um, at... um, George Mason University. Uh, he's the author of numerous different papers and books uh, on the topic. And um, I believe he's an old friend of yours, isn't he, Christiana? Yes. I, I, I love to use the word old uh, in this conversation. <laughs> we are both old friends. <laughs> and you're going to go and talk to him? I will. All right. Have fun, Christiana. Enjoy. Bye. So, Tom Lovejoy, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. Uh, We do episodes, uh, some of them are very optimistic, some of them are just express outrage. Uh, And I must say that one of the um, news items that has provoked most outrage over the past few weeks, if not a whole month, are the fires in the Amazon. So uh, we are very grateful that you have joined us today to give us some background on what is going on there. But could we start, Tom, by taking you back? Because I think, am I correct in saying that you first uh, traveled to, or started traveling to the Brazilian Amazon way back in 1965? Is that correct? 
That is correct. Okay, so why, Tom? Why you? Uh, why did you choose the Brazilian Amazon? Why? Why is it important to both Brazil and the world? Well, I was just looking for scientific adventures. I had a little bit of an idea about the need for conservation, uh, and I got the opportunity to go. And there I was in the world's biggest wilderness, 97% intact. And it was like, you know, it was like a biologist's Christmas stocking with no end. <laughs> and um, how would you characterize the, uh, the work that you've been doing there for the past 40, 50 years? Well, it's, it's been around understanding the science of the Amazon, understanding how actually in the end the Amazon has to be managed as a system because it makes its own rainfall uh, and promoting uh, conservation and protection of indigenous areas uh, and in, in, in the end trying to get intelligent use of the Amazon as opposed to destructive use. So from that perspective, very interesting that it produces its own rainfall, um, a, a rainfall that we could have used a lot in the past few weeks. But from the perspective of you understanding the dynamics inside the Amazon, Tom, um, let's talk about the fires. Uh, why do you think that they started? What are the reasons for starting? Why was, were they so mismanaged? What is behind there? So I'm looking for both, uh, I guess, the scientific as well as your interpretation of the politics behind this. So what's really fascinating about the public attention to the fires is this is not the biggest fire season ever in the Amazon. There have been higher ones in the past. Uh, and it was because all that smoke blew into Sao Paulo and they had to turn the streetlights on three hours early. I mean, that is what got the world's attention. And thank goodness that did happen because this is a big uptick in fires from the last two or three years. And it's mostly because, it, not that it's a dry year, it's an ordinary year. It's because there was governmental rhetoric which basically encouraged people to go ahead and and do spontaneous deforestation, uh, really illegal deforestation, and then torch what they had so they could then turn the land into pasture or some kind of crop. So when you say spontaneous deforestation, um, you, you, I'm wanting to understand what you mean by that, Tom. So, so if you're somebody who thinks they can actually do financially well or improve their lot in life by getting into the Amazon and cutting down uh, some chunks of it and turning it into agriculture uh, because the land is so cheap. Uh, if you know you can do that and it's not being monitored or policed, it's an opportunity that some people naturally jump at. So they they um, go, they cut down trees, and then they set fire to the underbrush that is left over. Is that correct? That's correct, because a rainforest will not burn. Standing rainforest has just got too much moisture in it. So you have to have at least five days without any rain at all uh, before the stuff you've cut down is flammable. 
So this was actually the fires, two, two things that are very interesting of what you've said. First, that this is not the worst fire that the Amazon has seen. Um, would be interested in your sense of, of uh, regeneration and recuperation capacity after this fire. The second thing that you've said that is really interesting is that it did not occur because it's been particularly dry. It occurred basically out of man's intervention into the forest. Well, that's completely correct. Uh, you know, when, when you aren't investing in enforcement, uh, people will just go ahead and do what they want to do. Uh, I mean, particularly when the rhetoric sort of encourages people to think of the Amazon as, and its rainforest as unproductive. And so, Tom, um, if this is not the worst fire that you've seen or that the Amazon has seen, would you say that there's a certain justification of uh, Brazilian government to reject any help from abroad, to lay down its claim of sovereignty and say, don't meddle in something that is not your business? Are they justified in that? Well, you know, if this were way back at the beginning of deforestation, it might make more sense. But they are, in fact, right on the verge of a tipping point where that hydrological cycle that generates all that rainfall uh, will be sufficiently damaged that the southern and eastern and parts of the central Amazon will no longer be able to support forest and will convert to some kind of grassland. And all the biodiversity in that and all the carbon in that will be lost, the CO2 to going into the atmosphere, the biodiversity just vanishing. And it's going to be really extremely, if it happens, seriously impactful on the people who live there. Can you, can you go into more detail, Tom, to explain to us how does the Amazon produce its own rainfall and what are the changes that are already underway that could get us to that tipping point of completely transforming the habitat? So the fascinating thing is uh, until the mid-1970s, the dogma was that vegetation is simply the consequence of climate and has no influence on it whatsoever. And a Brazilian scientist named Anaya Salati looked at isotopes of oxygen of rainwater from the Atlantic to the Peruvian border and proved without a doubt that the Amazon makes half of its own rainfall, that it in fact recycles five or six times as it goes across the basin. And that's because there is rainforest there, which creates incredible opportunities for evaporation, and the leaves are also transpiring. And after a rainfall, you literally can see plumes of moisture going up into the, the westward moving air mass. That's the hydrological cycle. And so, how, how is that being changed? So knowing that exists uh, and that it's because it is forest and knowing that when rain falls on the forest, about three quarters of it uh, returns to the westward moving air mass. And when there is no forest, it all actually drains away. Uh, the question has been there from the beginning, how much deforestation would cause that to degrade? And my Brazilian colleague, Carlos Nobre, and I have talked about this for like 25 years. 
Uh, he had somebody do a model at one point, and we thought maybe the tipping point would be at 40 to 50% deforestation. But what is different in the last 10 years is we also have climate change and extensive use of fire, such as we've had these, this year. And the three of them are, are interacting uh, in a very negative synergy, so much so that we now have historic droughts almost every five years which Carlos and I think are the first flickerings of the tipping point. So we think they're really right on the verge of tipping right now. Uh, we also think it's really stupid to find out where the tipping point is by tipping it. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and there are really positive things you can do by reforestation to build back a margin of safety. So let, let, let's get to that um, in a second, Tom. Um, but could, could you explain to us why is the danger of the tipping point important to Brazil as a country as well as to the other Amazonian countries? Because it's not just Brazil that has Amazon, right? There are nine countries that have uh, Amazon territory in them. Uh, so why is it important? I think 60% of the Amazon is Brazil and the, the other 40 are divided among the other countries. Is that correct, Tom? That's right. Okay. So, um, so why is it important for Brazil and the other countries? But also, why is the Amazon as the habitat that exists today important to the world? Are both of those mutually exclusive or are they the same? Uh, they are actually interwoven. So that hydrological cycle is not confined to the Amazon. Some of that moisture spills over and goes into parts south of the Amazon. So agriculture in central Brazil gets some of its moisture from the Amazon. The urban reservoirs uh, in the south of Brazil get some of their moisture from the Amazon, and it actually carries further south all the way to nor northern Argentina. So it's basically messing with a continental climate system. If it tips, you know, Brazil will be the country which loses the rainforest, loses all that biological diversity, uh, has the impact on its own people, and is releasing enormous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, the Western Amazon countries will still get enough rain to have rainforests, but they will have less rain. So it will be a different rainforest. The rivers will run differently. The fisheries will, will run more, less productively. Uh, so it really is something that involves all the Amazon countries, not just Brazil. And um, let me push, because I think it's important to, um, to understand what is underneath all of this. There are some people who sadly will not place a value on biodiversity. The fact is our economic system does not value biodiversity. So that's, that's the first right. problem. Uh, and we have to move to a point where we actually internalize that into our economic valuation. But beyond that, there are uh, quite a few people, some of whom are in power, who actually don't care. They just wouldn't care if Brazil loses that biodiversity. What, what do you say to that? So the irony is, of course, is some of them are probably treating their high blood pressure with ACE inhibitors, which uh, are based on the biology of a nasty snake that lives in that Amazon rainforest. I mean, hundreds of millions of people around the world 
live longer and healthier and productive lives because of that. And that kind of potential to revolutionize the health sciences and the life sciences is, is there in all that biological diversity. It is, you know, the single largest living library for the life sciences. So the smart thing for the Amazon countries is to invest in exploring that potential uh, and doing it in association with industry so that a promising scientific discovery gets turned into something productive. Uh, the notion that the forest itself is not productive is very simplistic and, in fact, wrong. What, what do we learn either on how do we prevent this kind of a situation? How do we manage it better? Um, what, what would be, you know, in, in addition to the outrage that, uh, that we have shared here, what's the optim? is there a silver lining? Is there an optimism here? Well, there, there definitely is a place for a new vision for the Amazon uh, that doesn't use old-fashioned infrastructure projects that lead to deforestation, uh, but in fact tries to design sustainable infrastructure, uh, uses the rivers as the main system of transport, which has worked very well for millennia, uh, and actually is one of the, the most efficient forms of transport in the world, because it all goes downhill anyway. Uh, and it's, it's actually having a new vision uh, that embraces the Amazon and that biological potential, whether it's through aquaculture or through exploration for new fungicides or whatever it might be. And do you see any sparks of that new vision? Well, I do. And, you know, the, the, the good thing here, of course, uh, at the same time that it's a complication that we're dealing with essentially nine countries, uh, it is also a benefit that it's nine countries because there has to be a discussion amongst them. And last Friday in Leticia, the government of Colombia hosted all the heads of state uh, of the Amazon countries, uh, essentially sort of laying a framework to start that kind of discussion. With what in mind? I think, obviously, there's a chance here for this larger vision we were just discussing to emerge in all of that. Uh, I certainly certainly know that vision is shared by the president of Colombia, who called that meeting. Uh, and so instead of it being Brazil against the G7 or however it's being portrayed uh, in Brazil, it's actually Brazil as one of nine countries, which will have to get to a discussion about how do you actually manage this uh, global treasure uh, to the benefit of all those countries. To the benefit of all of those countries. That that's the piece, Tom, that I think is such a such a challenge, right? Because I think um, everyone realizes the global value of the Amazon, um, but what is difficult is that tension between the protection of that very important lung for uh, for the planet, but how do you see that from a local or national perspective? And, and why should Brazil or Colombia or Peru invest uh, to protect that for the world when 
arguably, at least from the point of view of some, uh, they're not getting any national benefit. That That's the piece that I think we still need to dig into. How, how do you suggest we do that? How do you, how do you populate and give more credence to that understanding? So I think the first point to make is they're already getting some benefit. Uh, it's just not in the simplistic kind of model that's being discussed by the leaders of Brazil of the moment. So it, it's not like there is an economic activity that's going on which has very low impact. Uh, aquaculture in the, the Brazilian Amazon is taking off. And I think one day, you know, those fish species will be as well known to the general public as tuna and swordfish are. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, you, you need to taste it. <laughs> Happily. Uh, <laughs> but, but the other point here is nobody in their right mind can really expect these countries to do all they need to do uh, within their own nations as well as what needs to be done for the Amazon all by themselves. Uh, and I think we have to actually think differently and not be such skin flints. Uh, you know, I had, had lunch today with Jeremy Oppenheim, who explained to me quite carefully how if one week of oil production in, in the year is devoted to this kind of purpose, it would be like $60 billion. Right? That's a serious sum of money, much more than the $20 million that pocket change uh, that was offered by the G7. So is it is it a question of funding? Is that where we're stuck? Well, I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, there is, there is a lesson from history that can be very useful uh, because most people are unaware that this actually was the second time in history that the G7 discussed the Brazilian rainforest. The last was 1990 at Houston. And that led to the G7 pilot program for the Brazilian rainforests, uh, which was a multi-billion dollar effort over time. And it was managed by the World Bank. So it wasn't a sovereignty issue since it was managed by a multilateral. And, you know, as I think about it right now, I think the multilateral best suited to do that kind of thing uh, if the contributions come, is the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, the Inter-American Development Bank to manage any international funding that would come. And what would be your top two or three um, destinations for that uh, financing? Would, if we had the money available and if it were properly managed, uh, where, where would it be destined? What are the two to three best opportunities for that? So I... I put one portion of it, and I don't even think it would be a third, but uh, one portion of it into things which support law and order, sort of completing the land titling, the cadaster that Brazil is close to finishing for the Amazon, for example, uh, which then makes possible all kinds of law enforcement and management. And then I would create incentives for people to do experimental uh, economic activities that actually use natural resources without destroying them. Uh, so the aquaculture has only just started to take off, uh, and it's mostly in the state of Acre in Brazil, 
Uh, there's a little bit of it in Peru. Uh, that could become a major industry basin-wide. And in fact, there's a need for an Amazon fisheries agreement so that all the countries are supporting a common management scheme. Uh, and lots of things could be done with local communities uh, that we have examples of things that have been working. Uh, some of them are simple, uh, better jobs done of natural resource management, of things they've always managed. Uh, one that people are not very aware of is uh, tropical aquarium fish, a huge number of which come from the Rio Negro region and now are a sustainable activity uh, that support those communities. Uh, major sports fishing tourism, uh, and ecotourism always sounds like a lame idea, uh, but in fact, it is so poorly developed uh, in the Amazon, particularly the Brazilian Amazon, uh, that there's huge potential there. And of course, you know from your own country what ecotourism can do. Indeed, we do, we do. In a much smaller region, but, uh, but, but an example nonetheless. Tom Lovejoy, thank you so much for joining us today on Outrage and Optimism. And thank you for sharing a new vision of the Amazon. May we all help to make that come true. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Well, a very interesting interview with Tom Lovejoy. Interesting, I think, on two accounts. The first is that we learned that the fires that we have been witnessing over the past few weeks, almost months now, were actually not unique. They have occurred before in the Amazon, and in fact, there have been even worse fires. What was different this time is that we were better informed. In fact, the news about the fires spread as quickly or quicker than the fires themselves. The second point that we learned from Tom Lovejoy is that while the fires were very destructive of the natural habitat and impacted the lives of millions of people, they were actually not a standalone challenge. In fact, the fires in the Amazon in general are not a standalone challenge because now we have the confluence of fires, climate change that is increasing temperature and drying the forest out, and deforestation, and all three of them are leading to the tipping point that Tom was talking about, where we are risking having that rainforest, one of the largest in the world, tip over into a grassland through a complete transformation of the hydrological cycle. That would be not only a disaster for local climate and for livelihoods in and around the Amazon, but it would be a disaster for global climate change due to the huge release of CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. So to the point that we discussed right at the beginning before we interviewed Tom, whether sovereignty or global commons and whether there is a conflict between the two, the answer I think is quite clearly no, there is actually an overlap between national interest and global interest. They do not contradict to each other. Actually, 
protecting these global commons and these national treasures are in the interest of both the country and the planet. Thanks for listening and see you next week when we will have another very interesting guest. Bye for now. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. The team includes Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivikarnak, Marina Mansilla, Callum Green, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrop. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback, podcast at globaloptimism.com. So many of you have been writing in, and we do try to respond to every email. Thanks for that kind of feedback. We really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. We'll see you next week.